Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Carroll. He is a scholar in the field of literature and evolution. He is currently curator's professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, where he has taught since 1985. Dr. Carroll's Evolution and Literary Theory was one of the first literary studies to take the cue from important developments and disciplines such as evolutionary psychology, evolutionary anthropology, and sociobiology, seeing evolutionary biology as an alternative to post-structuralism. He is also the author of books like Literary Darwinism, Evolution, Human Nature and Literature, Reading Human Nature, uh, Graphing Jane Austen, and produced an edition of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, and also co-edited volumes 1 and 2 of the Evolutionary Review, and co-edited Evolution, Literature, and film, a reader. So, Dr. Carroll, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. Okay, great. So, the first question I would like to ask you is, uh, what is really literary Darwinism uh, and how was it first developed? <clears throat> it's a, a school of literary theory and criticism that grounds itself in current knowledge about uh, evolved behavioral and cognitive characteristics of the human species. Uh, it's a school, uh, like other schools, Marxism, Freudianism, deconstruction, feminism, but it aims at being uh, all comprehensive, ultimately subsuming or assimilating, integrating uh, all other possible approaches to literary theory. Uh, it's meant to be uh, a comprehensive paradigm for understanding uh, everything about how imaginative verbal constructs are produced, uh, what functions they have, what characteristics they have. Uh, so it's a combination of uh, all the people have learned over millennia about literature and uh, the kind of specialized knowledge that has emerged in the past 40 or 50 years from uh, the application of evolutionary biology to uh, human behavior and experience. Right. Okay. So when you first got across uh, disciplines like sociobiology and evolutionary psychology, what were really the insights or the knowledge that you got from them that made you really think that perhaps you could apply it in literary studies and perhaps improve upon certain approaches like post-structuralism and deconstructionism and others? Well, the, the one main thing that bothered, well, there are two main things that bothered me about uh, the, the post-structuralism, the general theoretical vision that preceded uh, literary Darwinism and is still current. Uh, one thing was the belief that language makes the world, that we are only what language or culture uh, makes us into, that uh, we can see and uh, feel only what our languages or our cultures have designed for us. And um, the other was the, the, uh, the general irrationalism, the, the belief that uh, it wasn't possible to gain real knowledge about the world, uh, that there was just an infinite play of signs or relativity of culture. So uh, Darwinism appealed to me at first in part because it restored a real world, a world in which organisms, human organisms, interact with an environment. So it restored reality and it restored the possibility of gaining uh, objective, scientifically valid knowledge about reality. 
Right. Okay. And I mean, it, uh, a field like literary Darwinism, I mean, it has several different aspects to it. On the one hand, we have the adaptations of the human mind or how the human mind evolved cognitively and that give the basis to what we produce uh, in terms of literature. But on the other end, it's also an aspect of human culture and so perhaps there are at least some aspects, uh, aspects of it that uh, operate at a cultural level and must be really difficult to reduce to their biological basis or to a biological level. Correct. Well, one of the most important developments in evolutionary social sciences over the past 20 or 30 years has been the gradual development of a more biocultural understanding of human mm. behavior realization that humans are cultural animals uh, there had before there had been a, a dichotomy the nature nurture dichotomy the, the nurture people said it's all nurture and then the biology people tended to try to reduce everything to biology but there's been an increasingly sophisticated understanding that humans are a peculiarly cultural species social learning uh, the ability of shared attention, uh, uh, the necessity for humans to develop a, an imaginative construct of the world and to operate through that. So uh, from the beginning, I've, I've argued that there are levels of a, a literary Darwin, Darwinistic analysis. Uh, there's a universal level, uh, human universals, things that people all over the world share. And then there's a cultural level, and uh, the universal level includes culture, but then at the cultural level, what I'm calling the cultural level, there are variations where uh, individual cultures take all the elements of human nature, the biological biases, dispositions, propensities, and uh, develops them in different ways. Uh, under the influence of uh, environmental constraints and uh, traditions, but uh, there's the uh, the cultural level that's never divorced from a biological level. There's always uh, uh, human motives, evolved human motives and dispositions that are constraining and channeling uh, cultural forms. And then there's a third level, which is individual variation, you know, individual persons. So the biological and the cultural are never strictly separated from no. one another, right? No, they're not. No. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when it comes to literature and literary studies, what would you say are really some of the main aspects of human psychology that we have to take into account when, when making those kinds of studies? Well... Uh, the, the first thing I point to are uh, basic motives and emotions. Uh, and there's something called human life history theory, which is a subset of a general biological theory called life history theory. And it's about the structure of uh, birth, uh, growth, uh, reproduction, uh, social organi organization, if there is any parenting, if there is any, uh, uh, old age, death, and humans have a very specific life history. They evolved in highly particular ways as a, uh, a social species with a long childhood and long infant dependency and postmenopausal survival. There are all kinds of special aspects, and they involve then uh, a distinct, discernible set of basic motives that are activated by basic emotions. And one of my starting points for studying any literary text is to ascertain what are the, what are the main driving motives and concerns of the depicted characters or the author, uh, and in what way are they appealing to uh, motives and emotions in their, in their readers. So that's motives and emotions is one big area. Uh, 
<clears throat> cognitive dispositions, the way the mind uh, makes sense of things, uh, the uh, developmental psychology is now teaching us, and neuroscience teaching us quite a lot about uh, how the human mind is put together, how it develops in childhood and all the different aspects of cognition and imagination. So you need to be aware of uh, things like episodic memory and semantic memory, putting together uh, an autobiographical narrative for each individual person, uh, a theory of mind or perspective taking, that's crucial for literary study. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of uh, peering into other people's minds. And, the, and when I teach, uh, for example, now I'm teaching a course in short stories, and the main emphasis I give, apart from motives and emotions, is on the interplay of perspectives, what the author thinks about the characters or the narrators, uh, how the characters think about one another, uh, what the author thinks the reader is thinking, and what the reader thinks. And so the interplay of perspectives is, is a crucial aspect. Uh, one other main area is formal organization or style, and there again, uh, cognitive neuroscience can take us a long way into understanding uh, the forms of literary representation, uh, the way that the mind processes certain kinds of information. So, yeah, those three things, I would say, are the, the most important things. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, in, in the way that social science uh, and the humanities traditionally operated, people tended to talk a lot about what they called social or cultural constructions. And right. perhaps we could refer here to the term that Lida Cosmides and John Tooby coined that, that was the standard social science model where they really referred that one aspect of it is that it really appealed to social and cultural constructivism or constructions. And so do you think that with these new approaches that come from disciplines that are biologically based like evolutionary psychology, sociobiology and so on, that we can still talk about uh, cultural constructions without putting them at a level that is sort of a purely uh, symbolic or purely cultural or that perhaps uh, derive from processes that occur uh, exclusively at a cultural level? I think you have to. Uh, the, the earliest, some of the earliest efforts at a biologically based literary criticism gave far too little emphasis to culture and just tried to talk about universal mating strategies, universal survival strategies, uh, that doesn't take you very far. Uh, all people live in a culture, and they have myths, uh, forms of imagination, uh, narrative styles they, that uh, largely shape the way they see the world. Those myths and narrative styles, forms of imagination, are themselves infused with evolved passions, emotions, motives, uh, but they nonetheless vary a good deal. Uh, if you think about a medieval Christian vision of the world, people are still there motivated by hunger and sexual passion and parenting motives and social status and all the standard repertory of basic motives and emotions, but they have a vision of uh, life and the afterlife that profoundly influences how they behave and what they feel and think and the kind of experiences they go through. And you couldn't begin to understand medieval literature without understanding that whole worldview. If you go through any, any big museum that's historically, art museum that's historically organized, you run into several hundred years uh, in, the, in the medieval and renaissance phases in which people are totally preoccupied with images of uh, Christ, especially Christ on the cross. Uh, and then there are other cultures like that of ancient Greece in which those images would be bizarre and incomprehensible. Uh, so in order to understand the literature of either of those periods, 
you have to understand the forms of imagination that are uh, characteristic of that culture. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when it comes to very specific approaches, like, for example, the one that was put forth uh, by uh, authors like Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, and that was supported by authors like Steven Pinker, where he even uh, t where he even talks about the arts and literature more specifically as being cheesecake for the mind, right? So something like that. What do you think about that? Well, I think that uh, evolutionary psychology, which emerged. Uh, in the early 90s, it was 1992, the book The Adapted Mind was mm -hmm. uh, the major document, uh, was a, an early phase in the development of the evolutionary social sciences. It was a step forward from sociobiology, which tried, tended to reduce everything to inclusive fitness, reproductive motives, uh, and just stripped out a huge array of human social and cultural experience. And then evolutionary psychology tried to advance on that by uh, talking about modules in the mind, specific parts of the mind that were shaped by adaptive pressures, selective pressures, and a place to see in forager culture. Uh, and it went a little further than sociobiology in identifying a wider range of possible evolved characteristics, but it was uh, far too rigid in its emphasis on uh, the Pleistocene environment. It turned, for example, uh, declared that the uh, everything since agriculture uh, about 10,000 years ago was basically a mismatch to our evolved psychology. And that was just a mistake. Uh, people have been evolving uh, ever more rapidly uh, over the past 300,000 years, and that hasn't stopped since agriculture. And people have adapted. Uh, the agricultural rose uh, as a result of uh, the evolved and adapted capacities of human beings, and then they continued to evolve and adapt in response to the new demands of a uh, highly concentrated population with hierarchical stratification uh, and then urbanization cities. Uh, and uh, Pinker based his work, and I still think still does, on the uh, general vision of the mind that was formulated by Tubi and Cosmides and people like David Buss and Don Simons are early in the, the movement for evolutionary psychology. And since that, the emphasis there was always on, still on survival and reproduction, what looked like culture, especially the more advanced forms of uh, sophisticated culture that have emerged since agriculture, uh, seemed irrelevant. It seemed uh, not to have any real function within the, the basic scheme of survival and reproduction. Uh, that was a really fundamental misunderstanding about the uh, significance of culture in human life. It's only fair to say that in 1990, I believe, Tubi and Cosmides published, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2000, uh, so uh, eight years after The Adapted Mind, published a, a frequently cited essay called uh, 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 I forget the title of it, but the word beauty is in the, in the title. And the idea is that uh, they had revised their basic belief that the arts were maladaptive or, or non-adaptive, that they were just side effects. Uh, uh, Pinker hasn't, I believe, much changed his mind, but you still run into a fair number of people, probably, I won't say the majority, but a, a large proportion of the people in the uh, the community of evolutionary social scientists who uh, pay no attention to the arts or culture, believe that it's not really very relevant, that the only things that matter are uh, uh, food, uh, shelter, uh, parenting, social life. They don't, they don't understand the importance of the imagination. But evolutionary cultural theory has been developing 
steadily over the past 20 or 30 years. And we now know a lot more, and there's a greater tendency towards a convergence between humanists who focus on culture but believe that culture is grounded in biology and evolutionary social scientists who focus on evolved motives and behavior but believe that the cultural imagination is part of human evolved characteristics. Uh, when you talk about evolutionary cultural theory, are you referring to the work of people like, for example, Dr. Robert Boyd and Peter Richardson and Joseph Henrik and people like that? Yeah, I am. Right, I am. Uh, uh, Boyd and Richardson have uh, two lines of theory. One uh, focuses on... Uh, Uh, gene culture coevolution, and that that idea E.O. Wilson was a pioneer in in the in the early 80s. He published a book, uh, two books on that, and has continued to uh, talk about it. But Boyd and Richardson, that's one of their ideas, and Henrik goes along in that idea. He was Boyd's student, uh, and the other idea is cultural, what they call cultural evolution. There's a tremendous amount of confusion in the area simply because of the confusion of terms. People use the term cultural evolution often when they mean uh, gene culture coevolution. But cultural evolution, in the strictest sense, means that culture evolves in a way parallel to the evolution of biology. And that there's a what they call it a dual inheritance system. And that we inherit certain things biologically and we inherit certain things culturally, there's in that model, there's far too little interaction between culture and biology. So uh, there's gene culture coevolution, which I think is the, the way, I think it's the truth and that it's what's going to lead us into a full and adequate theory of uh, human culture. Uh, and then there's cultural evolution, which I think is a a confusing byline that's probably going to peter out as uh, more research reveals that culture is never independent of biology. Mm -hmm. So you've already referred several times to Dr. E.O. Wilson, and as far as I know, he also put forth Uh, an hypothesis, I guess we could call it, uh, uh, that he called imaginative virtual worlds while referring to perhaps the, the features of our mind that really allowed for us uh, to simulate worlds or events in our heads and to have thought experiments without the need to really go through those same experiments in the real world and avoiding getting in danger and things like that uh, unnecessarily, of course. So what would you have to say about uh, that Uh, way of thinking about perhaps fiction and fictional literature and things like that. Right. Uh, yeah, a distinction needs to be made. Wilson, in uh, the, his book, Consilience, uh, published in 1997 or 1998, uh, put forward the idea that uh, imagination was an uh, imagination manifesting itself in myths and rituals, religious beliefs, all the in culture, uh, was uh, a peculiarly human adaptation, imaginative culture, uh, a peculiarly human adaptation that uh, enabled us to cope with the world once our minds had become so flexible that we were no longer guided by instinct alone. Uh, That's one idea. And then there's another idea, which is that uh, scenarios that we can play, uh, play out in our minds, possible events, and think about how to deal with them. And uh, that idea, actually, even Pinker supports in, in How the Mind Works, his 1997 book in which he talks about uh, uh, the arts as mental cheesecake. Uh, They aren't quite the same idea. I mean, they're, they're related, clearly. Uh, and the, uh, the difference is that 
imaginative culture is broader. It's not just thinking about things that might happen and then figuring out how you'll deal with them if they do. Uh, it's having a whole vision of the world so that you think about uh, gods and planetary systems and supernatural agencies and you develop ethical systems and you have a conception of how humans behave and their relation to the plant and animal world. And all of that is an imaginative virtual world. And it's not just a single scenario for an event that, what would happen if I uh, suddenly came upon a, a saber-toothed tiger? How would I deal with it? That's a very small, practical, specific scenario. But an imaginative worldview, which is what Wilson had in mind, is a much bigger vision of the whole world. And the idea is that all of our behavior is ultimately lodged within an imaginative worldview. And that what we, we do what we do on the basis of our suppositions about what the gods will think about it or how nature works or what uh, our moral norms in our culture uh, are or what would be an ideal way to live. Or We have various ways in which having an imaginative worldview guides our behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we move on to another topic, I would also like to ask you, what would you say is the relevance that an approach like the one coming from Geoffrey Miller when he talks about the role that sexual selection might have played in the development or, or the evolution of artistic behavior, uh, what that kind of approach um, uh, might have to play, it might have as a role when it comes to perhaps analyzing literature and, and related things? Uh, well, Miller's idea is that uh, literature and other artistic performances, intellectual performances in general, uh, are forms of sexual display. And uh, there's some truth to that since humans are good at turning anything they do into forms of display, sometimes sexual, sometimes social status signaling. Uh, there are all kinds of signals that you can send. You can send signals of being weak and helpless, which is an appeal for help for other people. So almost anything you, you do can be turned into a signal, and literature is one of the things that you do. Uh, I think it's a... It's the kind of idea that uh, evolutionary psychologists who don't think about culture much and don't think about the arts much uh, naturally gravitate toward because it comes up with what looks like an easy causal explanation for why people engage in the arts. But it doesn't even begin to uh, give an adequate account of imaginative virtual worlds, of the way people have evolved the ability and the necessity of forming an imaginative virtual world in order to uh, function at all. People really can't escape from that. And, it, and their, their motives and impulses that are manifested in literature and the other arts uh, are certainly sex is the main part of it, since sex is the main part of human behavior. But it's certainly not the only part of it. Uh, parenting is important. Social life is important. Uh, growing up and developing relations with your family members is important. Uh, developing an understanding of the whole world is important. There are lots of ways in which uh, people do things in literature that have uh, almost nothing to do with sex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit now about uh, universals in literature and literary studies. So what, what are the, some of the main universals that we have already identified in literature? And do, do they fall under certain categories, like, for example, uh, themes, genres, um, character types, and things like that? Right. Uh, well, human universals is a, a field in itself. Uh, Don Brown still has uh, the definitive book, or the, the, the book that's most important in that, that area, and that's 30 years old now. Uh, it's called Human Universals. And uh, 
human universals is a, li a little tricky as a term because it, it doesn't mean uh, behavior or cognitive dispositions that is displayed by every human. It means uh, cognitive dispositions or behavioral dispositions that are prevalent in every known culture. So there can be individuals who are in one way or another outside of that pattern. Uh, but uh, just to take one of his examples, marriage, some form of recognized sexual access to uh, publicly acknowledged legitimate access to sexual behavior uh, with another person. That's a, that's a human universal, though the forms of marriage obviously differ from polygamy to polyandry to monogamy. All over the world, there are many different forms. Uh, for literary study, uh, universals include uh, what I was talking about earlier, all the life history characteristics, the uh, basic motives, uh, social relationships, uh, everything about uh, uh, emotions and cognitive dispositions. They're uh, universals of uh, neurological organization, uh, uh, perspective taking, empathy, theory of mind. Uh, there are people who aren't able to do that, like autistics, for example, have trouble with theory of mind. But theory of mind is a distinguishing species typical characteristic that appears in uh, all uh, all societies. And it's one of the features that is of human cognitive architecture that's most important for studying literature. So you look for, you look for uh, as I said, when I approach literature, one of the first things I do is look for basic motives and emotions. And those are human universals. Mm -hmm. And in terms of uh, character types and themes that are explored in literature, are there any really big uh, human universals that we know about? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's been uh, a lot of speculative work on those kinds of categories with uh, uh, Carl Jung and then uh, in the mid-century period, last century, uh, uh, Northrop Fry had a, a book called Anatomy of Criticism, and it was the uh, foundation of archetypal uh, literary criticism, study of myths, the belief in uh, universal uh, kinds of characters like the heroic quester or the wise old man or uh, the witch figure. Uh, there uh, those theories, I was tempted by though, I, I was a, in, in my early student days, was much drawn to Jung, uh, partly because of the recognition of deep-seated universal character types and genres. He, he has a whole, the anatomy of criticism is a, a genre theory, there's a whole set of genres that enter into it, tragedy, comedy, heroic quest. Uh, uh, irony and satire. Uh, I believe that that there's a lot to that, but that there was so much in Jung and then also in Fry that was uh, made up out of bits and pieces of uh, traditional thinking and religious thinking and weren't solidly grounded in an evolved a, a view of the evolved and adapted characteristics of the human mind. So it was probably better to start over to build rather than to try to adapt Jung and Fry uh, it was better to start over and uh, work out from uh, human life history theory and uh, cognitive neuroscience to develop a, a better model uh, I don't think that there are any uh, absolute types I think that uh, literature and the arts are on are like language in a way. They, they, they're composed of all kinds of elements. New elements are introduced. The elements combine in all kinds of weird ways and they interact with new social and economic and ecological circumstances uh, to form uh, new patterns. So you can find uh, common patterns based on species typical characteristics, but they don't form a closed system. They don't form a kind of finite uh, set of categories. It's not, it's not quite like uh, a chemical system of elements, where you've got uh, uh, 
categories that are grounded in uh, atomic weights and the number of electrons in an outer shell. And it's not that finite and uh, firm in its shape. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Jung and the archetypes, do you think that because he was interested in their universality that he was also trying to give them sort of a biological basis in the sense that human universals are one but not the only criteria that we use to decide that some sort of human behavior or human cultural manifestation as a biological basis. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot of biology in Jung, but Jung came of age in a period in which uh, people tended to uh, highly intellectual Europeans uh, tended to still be synthetic, uh, merging two separate streams of intellectual history. One, the Darwinian stream, uh, naturalism, uh, ecology, evolution, and the other, a transcendental stream, coming out of German speculative philosophy and Kantianism, uh, uh, Karl Popper, uh, the philosopher of science, uh, mentioned, I believe it was Popper, that over his father was a lawyer, and over his father's desk, who was an intellectual, uh, behind his, behind him, there were two uh, uh, paintings, and one was of Charles Darwin, and the other was of Immanuel Kant, and that that struck me as as typifying uh, a, a a whole generation or several generations of of thinkers. Uh, Conrad Lawrence has a book, uh, the the ethologist, the German ethologist, uh, uh, has a book called Behind the Mirror. Uh, and in that book, he talks about the Kantians having understood that humans had evolved structures in their minds, but not yet having understood that those evolved structures were a result of an adaptation to, uh, to an environment. And I think that there's a lot of uh, confusion and, uh, that appears in both Jung and Northrop Fry that results from trying to integrate a transcendental or religious tradition with uh, a naturalistic evolutionary tradition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would also like to ask you what you think about approaches of uh, content analysis like the ones that were done uh, and that were exposed by people like Dr. Gad said in their books that are related to consuming behavior or consumer, consumer behavior, where he refers to the fact that uh, the four biggest modules that underlie the themes or the things that people pay the most attention to in fiction uh, are related to survival, reproduction, kin selection, and reciprocal altruism. So when it comes to that type of approach of content analysis, what, what would, do you make of its importance when it comes to really studying uh, literature? Uh, I think it's a, uh, a usable, rough and ready set of categories roughly based on uh, biology, on an understanding of human motives. Uh, the, the weakness in the, the, the set of categories you just mentioned is clear when the human sociality, for example, is turned into reciprocation. And there, there are multiple aspects of uh, human social interaction. Reciprocation is only one of them. Uh, that's a kind of crude popular version of human social interaction. Uh, I, as I use, I use a, uh, a set of categories that uh, takes in the ones that God Saad mentions. Uh, that's, they're part of human life history. And so I, I, I'm more, I, the short story course that I'm teaching right now is organized on the basis of categories from human life history. And all, I, give uh, one or two class periods to 
each of uh, six or seven major categories. Uh, reproduction or mating, pair bonding, that's one of them. Uh, parenting behavior is another. Social interaction is another. But then there are uh, growing up, there's a whole phase of human life that's focused on the problems of children and growing up and gaining a personal identity and forming a personal autobiographical narrative. And then there's another category of uh, the human cultural curiosity, the need for forming an imaginative vision of the world. Uh, so uh, I think you have to have a taxonomy. Uh, you know, Linnaeus is still still out there, still functional, still part of uh, our whole biological understanding of things. Taxonomy is crucial, but it's important to get your taxonomy straight and not to simplify it too quickly, too crudely. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the aspect of meaning in literature, do you think that we really have good enough scientific tools to explore it on a purely scientific level or with a pure scientific approach? Or that we also have to resort to, for example, philosophical tools? Uh, I think we, we know enough, certainly, to explore it scientifically. Uh, it, if we had, uh, the, if the academic literary establishment, by some miracle, were suddenly transformed into an establishment that was sympathetic, to evolutionary biology and the evolutionary social sciences and was eager to acquire uh, the methods of empirical research so that instead of having half a dozen of us doing that kind of thing, there were several hundred or many thousands doing it. Uh, the, uh, there's nothing in literature that would not be accessible to some form of empirical research. Uh, the work that's been done already uh, has managed to uh, get at uh, some fairly sophisticated forms of meaning. Uh, the, in practical reality, what the, the position we're at now is that uh, there's a little empirical research being done, a little more being done. At any given time, I'm, I'm aware of one or two empirical projects being conducted somewhere in the world, as opposed, for example, to the field of psychology in which uh, there are tens or hundreds of thousands of experiments, empirical studies being conducted at any given time. So there's just a trickle of empirical literary research going on. There's more being done by people who are still doing interpretive, uh, speculative literary criticism uh, informed by their reading in uh, the evolutionary social sciences. Uh, we're doing a kind of blended work at the present time, and I, I think it's, it would be the case that even if the whole literary establishment were transformed and had become sympathetic and actively involved in uh, empirical work, there would still be room for discursive interpretive commentary, but it would be much more fully integrated into empirical research. Okay, so just one last question before we go. Uh, I would like to ask you, and now borrowing perhaps a term from E.O. Wilson, that is consilience, what do you think should be the impact that Darwinism and evolutionary theory should have on the humanities? And do you think that since the development of fields like sociobiology roughly four decades ago, that they already, have, they already had an impact on the humanities, an important impact since then or not? Yeah, uh, well, I have a, a, uh, an idea, uh, just a, a hypothetical, uh, imaginary institute of graduate studies in literature. Uh, this is what I would like to see, uh, and I would like to see the whole, the whole of the academic literary establishment 
transformed into something integral with the Institute. And the Institute would have a range of activity uh, in which at one end you would have people who are uh, heavily involved in biology and psychology and empirical research, and but who were uh, taking literary studies as their primary subject matter. And we actually do have that now. There's a field called the psychology of fiction, there's cognitive rhetoric, cognitive literary studies. There's a fair amount of work being done by people, mostly with a psychology background, people like Keith Oatley, uh, Raymond Marr. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, they would, there would be people who are mainly doing uh, scholarship, historical scholarship, or literary criticism, but who are uh, fully conversant with all the work being done by the, the, the empirical researchers. Uh, and there's uh, a few dozen uh, people who fit that description at the present time. Uh, I, I would like to see all of literary study uh, ultimately uh, fully integrated with, compatible with, interactive with, uh, psychology, anthropology, biology, uh, evolutionary social theory, evolutionary cultural theory. I think that that would not be a, 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 a fad or a fashion. I think it would actually be uh, a, a development towards the necessary integration of all human knowledge. Mm -hmm. And is it the case that nowadays approaches like uh, the postmodern ones, post-structuralism, deconstructionism, and others still play uh, a very a very powerful ro role in the humanities, in the sense that perhaps they are still mainstream or at least They're dominant. Still, there. still mainstream. The uh, Modern Language Association of America has thirty or forty thousand members, I think, and. It's the it's the the establishment. Uh, they meet once a year. They have a big conference. They fill up two or three big conference hotels. That's a job fair, and then there there are hundreds of papers that are they're given in little panels, and uh, probably less than one percent of the people who attend those conferences. Uh, are sympathetic to the idea of literary Darwinism or or the evolutionary social sciences in general. They're still grounded fundamentally in European speculative philosophy and they're fundamentally constructivist. And that's, that's a peculiar uh, lag, time lag. There's a gap there between the uh, state of knowledge in the world in general and the state of knowledge in the humanities. The humanities are more and more isolated from uh, what's actually known and thought uh, by most people in the social sciences uh, and even by uh, the educated general public. I read a column in the New York Times yesterday um, by David, uh, David Edsel, uh, E-D-S-A-L-L, -L, and it was on uh, a survey about partisanship in the U United States politics. And the the column uh, kept quoting Tooby and Cosmides and Jonathan Haidt and uh, Robert Kurtzban and uh, evolutionary social psychologists. Uh, and that's the commonplace knowledge at the present time. It's what the generally educated public knows about. And uh, people in the academic literary establishment would be uh, shocked and indignant if you went to the MLA and quoted those same people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's hope that the picture improves in the near future. Uh, and just before we go, Dr. Carroll, would you like perhaps to make reference to any good places on the internet where people could go to know more about your work? Well, uh, I'm uh, co-editing a journal at the present time called Imaginative uh, Evolutionary Studies and Imaginative Culture, and that's a it's got a nice big website 
with uh, resources and we put up uh, 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 pictures of the copies of all the books that we review and there are a lot of open access articles. Well, that would be one place to go. Uh, uh, I have I have my own website. Uh, Brian Boyd has his own website. He's a he's a major contributor to this field. Uh, Matthias Clayson uh, studies horror research, uh, horror literature, and he's one of the editors for Imaginative Studies and Culture. Uh, my website, my best, the best place to go for my work would be my Academia Edu website. I've got everything I have written there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview, Dr. Carroll. And uh, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. And it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks. Thank you for calling. Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, if you don't like Patreon, you can also go to PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the video and also on my channel. Uh, and apart from that, you can also, of course, leave a like, share the interview and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larson, Law Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, and my first producer, Isar Webe. Thank you for all.